This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. In February of this year, the satellite radio companies XM and Sirius announced they were planning to merge. While that merger has yet to take place, and many say it won't ever take place, it did get people talking again about media consolidation, whether it's appropriate and how it's affecting us on an everyday basis. One of the people they're asking is Eric Kleinenberg. Kleinenberg is the author of the recent book, Fighting for Air, The Battle to Control America's Media, which is out now from Metropolitan Books, and he's frequently asked to comment on media issues. Kleinenberg is an associate professor of sociology at New York University, and he spoke last week at Fordham's Graduate School of Business. Kleinenberg is also my guest in the studio this week on Fordham Conversations. Eric Kleinenberg, thanks so much for joining me. Nice to be here. Now, you start off your book with a story about a disaster in Minot, North Dakota. Tell me about that. Well, it's an incredible story that that far more of us should know about than we probably would know about it if it weren't in such a small place. But five years ago, in January 2002, a train traveling outside of Minot, North Dakota, a town of a little less than 40,000 people, derailed in the ice. And unfortunately, it was carrying a lot of anhydrous ammonia, which is a highly toxic chemical. About 240,000 gallons of the anhydrous spilled, and it quickly formed a toxic cloud that grew to be about five miles long and two and a half miles wide. It floated directly over the town and penetrated the homes of about 15,000 people, and they were incredibly anxious. And one of the things I was able to do for my book was to dig up all of the audio files of the calls to 911 that morning and also to get the transcript so you could listen to people express their concern. It was just after September 11th. People had terrorism on their mind. There was an Air Force base around, and people thought literally the town was under attack. They also began to fear for their lives because if you breathe in anhydrous, it can burn your respiratory system. It, it feels like ice picks have hit your eyes if it, if it hits you. And if you breathe in enough of it, it can kill you. And, and so many people called 911, but the, the great majority did what we have all been trained to do for so many years when a disaster strikes, turn on our radios and listen for the emergency alert, the emergency information that tells us how to stay safe. But something went terribly wrong that morning when people tuned into their emergency broadcaster. Instead of getting information, they got the same music, the same smooth-talking DJs, the same canned content that plays every morning in Minot. And they got that from all six of their non-religious commercial stations, all of which were owned by one company. Clear Channel Communications, and all of them were being programmed out of two offices, two central studios. There was no one there to get out emergency news, and as a result, for hours, people in Minot had no idea what was going on. This is a terrible story, but why do you use it to start your book? What's it emblematic of? Well, for me, it signals uh, the danger, in this sense, quite literal, of media consolidation. It's very hard to understand how consolidation hits home and affects our lives, either in normal times or in disasters. Uh, You you might have seen these um, charts that magazines produce every once in a while. They'll show five or six big companies that own so much of the media system, and you see all their subsidiaries. And if you're like me, your response to that is, wow, that's that's awesome. That's a great display of graphic power. But then you draw a blank because it's hard to know why it matters for your life that GE owns NBC or that ABC is owned by Disney. What I do in this book and what I do in the story of Minot is try to explain in very vivid terms through stories 
how it is that consolidation of the media has changed the way that our radio stations operate, that our newspapers operate, that our television stations operate, even the way that the Internet works. And what's so dramatic about the Minot story is that it's a case where consolidation literally led to the incapacity of the station to provide people with news and information they need. I think a lot of people would be surprised by the level of non-localness of their local media. Can you explain how it works and also sort of economically why it works that way? Sure. It's a story of consolidation, actually. You know, 25 years ago in this country, it was illegal for any company to own more than one AM and one FM station in the same market. And under the Reagan administration, we began a period of deregulation where we started loosening the ownership caps, letting companies own more and more of the system. And a very dramatic moment came in 1996 in the Telecommunications Act, where we raised the station limit for any one company to eight in the biggest cities, and we eliminated the national cap, which had been 40, altogether. And it meant that within two years, about 40% of the nation's commercial broadcast stations changed hands, an incredible shopping spree. And quickly, as the, a few giants emerged, you know, some companies that own hundreds of stations, and one company, Clear Channel, that acquired more than 1,200 stations. Now, the reason this led to a decline in truly local content is that the business efficiency for big media chains and conglomerates comes from getting rid of human labor costs and centralizing production. So they want to reach as big an audience as possible, but they also want to keep their production costs low. And so throughout the country, companies like Clear Channel started getting rid of DJs, getting rid of talk show hosts, getting rid of even the back office staff people, literally consolidating operations, which means if you had six or seven different radio stations that had six or seven different offices, you merge them all into one building so you can keep your operating costs down. And then they started using digital technologies, you know, the very technologies that we conventionally think will liberate us and bring us into a world of limitless choice and limitless content. Those technologies, in the case of radio, were used to voice track programs, which means kind of automating a program so that it sounds like a live broadcast or even sounds like a local broadcast when it was produced you know, hundreds or thousands of miles away. And, and this is something that companies started to do, to, to literally fake local broadcasts. And they started getting rid of the local people who had their ears to the street of the places where they operated, listening for new sounds, for interesting stories, and they replaced them with very standard programs. For example, there are 47 KISS FMs across the country right now in many different cities. And so whereas it used to be the case that you could travel to Seattle or San Francisco or Chicago or Philadelphia and turn on the radio and hear the sounds of those cities, hear the voices of those cities, what I'm concerned about and what I think millions of Americans are concerned about today is when you turn on your radio station in a different town, it sounds the same. Now, if I live in a town where my local media content is controlled by Clear Channel or is brought to me by Clear Channel or some similar conglomerate, how does that play out for me sort of as I drink my coffee and eat my cereal in the morning? What do I see? Well, one thing you tend to get from the, the big chain radio companies is a very standard set of songs. So the, the playlist is done by regional programmers who have their eyes fixed on the play charts and marketing sheets rather than their ears defixed to the streets of the places where they operate. You probably hear a lot of commercials, and, and this is one of the really dramatic results of consolidation at the local level. When you have local media markets where they're 
two or three radio companies that get 80 or 90% of the ad dollars because they have such powerful stations, they suddenly realize they don't have to do as much to cater to the interests of listeners to keep them there. And they start expanding the amount of commercial time that they operate. You also probably hear a lot of kind of big-name, nationally syndicated programs, whether it's American Top 40 or Rush Limbaugh or Michael Savage or Dr. Laura. And that's especially true if you're on a Clear Channel station. This is something not many people know about Clear Channel. It owns the largest syndicator service that provides programming for more than half of all commercial radio stations in the United States. It's called Premier Radio Network. And for, so, for example, Clear Channel owns the Rush Limbaugh show. Clear Channel owns America Top 40. And so their stations tend to play those big name things. And, and, and what you don't hear on a Clear Channel station is someone who really understands the place where you live, the place where you're listening. Part of that is because a big change that Clear Channel and some of the other radio conglomerates imposed is they got rid of the news departments. They got rid of the public affairs programming altogether. So you'd have you know station groups that would have had eight, nine, ten reporters for a radio uh, station that now have one instead. But you may feel like you're listening to local content because the DJ will say when they're reporting the weather, they'll say, well, we have a big storm coming in. Yeah, well, this is an amazing thing, which has to do with uh, just how awesome the voice tracking is as a digital technology. It literally allows someone in any place in the world to record a full air shift uh, in in an incredibly short period of time. So, for instance, you could record a four-hour program in about 20 minutes if you knew how to do it. But you could also insert your voice and, and talk about places, even places that you'd never been, as if you were there. And listeners on the air would not know the difference. And so one of the things that radio conglomerates started to do was to fake local broadcasts. And that, that could be DJs pretending that they were at clubs or at community events that, in fact, they had not been in, or beginning to talk about places as if they lived in the town, or talk about a weather system as if they experienced it. And what's so interesting about this is it began as a radio technology that radio companies use to automate and keep costs down. And I think it turned off a lot of listeners when, when Americans started to realize that this had happened to their airwaves. And one way they learned is local radio personalities or so-called local radio personalities would mispronounce the names of towns. And you'd realize, like, this person doesn't know what they're talking about. They're, they're, they clearly don't know anything about the New York City, for, for instance. Well, if citizens and consumers got upset about it, other media companies said, wow, you know, Eureka, this is a great model for us. And so the chapter in my book about television starts with the story of the Sinclair Broadcast Group, which is an infamous company. Well, we could talk about it for lots of things. But in the media business, it became known for this news central operation where they had a staff of eight or nine meteorologists working out of a studio in suburban Baltimore. And each meteorologist did the weather report for five cities every day. And they would talk as if they were in these towns when clearly they were not. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We're talking today on Fordham Conversations about media consolidation. My guest is Eric Kleinenberg. Kleinenberg is the author of the new book, Fighting for Air, The Battle to Control America's Media, which is out now from Metropolitan Books. He's also the author of the book Heat Wave, A Social Autopsy of Disaster in Chicago, and he's an associate professor of sociology at NYU. Before the break, Kleinenberg mentioned the Sinclair Broadcast Group. I asked him to tell me more about them. 
The Sinclair Broadcast Group is an incredible company that far too few Americans have heard of, given that they own more television stations and local affiliates than any other company in this country. They're known for this News Central system, which involved creating a, a, a centralized news production system uh, in the suburbs of Baltimore. They wanted to have local news because it's such an important and profitable part of a local station. Companies don't want to make big investments in news production. And what Sinclair figured out is they could centralize their operations, do a central cast program, and and essentially fake a local news broadcast in cities throughout the country. So viewers were watching Sinclair programs, like, for instance, these weather reports, thinking that they were being done by meteorologists who were in their hometowns, but in fact, they weren't. And one of the things that Sinclair did is they had a one of the vice presidents, a guy named Mark Hyman, do a, a nightly editorial commentary called The Point, which was full of this totally extreme right-wing invective. I mean, people said it, it made Walter Cronkite sound like Bill O'Reilly. Uh, he, was, he was so far out there. The angry left and its media partners are in total denial. George Bush got more votes for president than anyone else, ever. The GOP picked up seats in both the House and the Senate. And Washington's top Democrat and obstructionist-in-chief, Tom Daschle, now has weekends and weekdays free. Voters sent a message. But the angry left just ain't listening. The Point was a must-carry show for all of the Sinclair affiliates that did the news. And so people living in towns throughout the country, as Las Vegas or Pittsburgh or Milwaukee, Wisconsin, were under the impression that this guy, Mark Hyman, was from their community. But in fact, you know, this was a central voice. So they faked the news. But, but what really got them in trouble, and I think the reason some people started to hear about them, is they decided in the 2004 election that they were going to use their stations to advance a highly partisan political project. The family that owns Sinclair, the Smith family, uh, has a deep loyalty to the Republican Party, and they felt like it was their responsibility as owners of a broadcast station not to do objective journalism that was balanced, but to do journalism that supported the policies of the sitting Republican president. And so, for instance, uh, in March of 2004, Sinclair forbid the ABC stations that it owns from airing the edition of Nightline with Ted Koppel, where Koppel read the names of all of the American war casualties in Iraq. You, you might remember that story. They literally forbid their ABC affiliates from airing that program because they, they felt like it was an anti-war program and they didn't want to allow their stations to do anything that would compromise American support for what Bush was doing. Then, even more outrageously, just two weeks before the election in 2004, Sinclair announced that it was going to air a documentary called Stolen Honor, which was the Swift Boat documentary. All hell broke loose when it became clear that Sinclair was going to do this, and there was an enormous backlash, and eventually Sinclair backed off. But what they told me, I, I spent a day inside Sinclair. I think I was the only person to actually get inside to look at how this operation worked. They just wanted to be on the map, and if they got the 50% of Americans who are, were supporting the president, who were um, supporting the, the war, that numbers, th those numbers have gone way down <laughs> since then, uh, that they were doing their job. And so one of the things that a number of critics of media consolidation are concerned about is that the companies like Clear Channel and like Sinclair and like Tribune uh, have had a very heavy-handed support for Republican politics and have used their their media holdings to try to advance a parochial set of uh, political positions. Uh, and I try to illustrate those stories very dramatically in the book. We're talking about media consolidation, and clearly it's something that you have 
a stance on. That's somewhat negative. But let me ask you, what are the justifications that companies use for it, and why do you think those are wrong? Well, there are a few big arguments that media corporations make in defense of consolidation. The biggest argument that, that critics make or the advocates of more consolidation make is we no longer need to worry about capping ownership because of the Internet. They essentially argue that in a digital age where we have access to information from all over the world at our fingertips, so long as we have a, an Internet connection, consumers' choices are limitless. And so ownership caps are an antiquated political technology. Well, in my view, the big problem with this is it doesn't capture the, the fundamental feature of the, of the American media system, which is that we care about competition in our local markets. And the, uh, there is a national media system, but, there, but all of us are also embedded in particular places. And the history of media policy in the United States is one in which the, the regulatory agency, the FCC, that was created in 1934, was primarily charged with making sure that our, our local media markets were competitive, that they had a number of different corporations competing with each other for audience attention, that they allowed for a diverse number of voices to be heard, and that they were intensely local, that they provided local content. And unfortunately, the empirical record shows that as you get rid of ownership caps and you allow a small number of companies to own so much of the, of the media system in a city, so eight radio stations or to have one newspaper company uh, or multiple television stations, what you start to get is a decline in competition, and that leads to less local content. And so although the Internet is a wonderful technology, and we can today get lots of news about Lebanon and South Africa and Brazil and international stories that we never could have had access to, Ask yourself how often you use the Internet to get a local public affairs program uh, that you can hear. To How often do you use the Internet to get local music? How often do you use the Internet to get local journalism about City Hall or the State House or the school system or polluting companies that, that operate where you live? Can you get stories about them that aren't already reported in the newspaper and available for free there. What I'm concerned about is the Internet, for all of its virtues, is just clearly not a substitute for what we lose when we get massive layoffs due to consolidated control. In spite of everything that we've been talking about, this is actually an unusually optimistic portrait of media consolidation. You talk about a lot of projects where people are really taking on big media companies or where they're finding ways to get voices heard that aren't being heard otherwise. One of the amazing things that's happened in this country in the last 10 years is that Americans are developing a, a political consciousness about media that I liken to the burgeoning of the environmental movement 40 years ago. In the same way that environmentalists started to recognize that we no longer needed to passively accept the fact that big corporations were polluting our air without much government oversight or regulation, Today, we're saying we are tired of this corporate-driven media system that is delivering a kind of noxious product, whether it's cultural or news. We're demanding more accountability, uh, more responsibility, and more of an opening so that citizens have a, a way to get their own voices on the air. And, it, and it's a fascinating movement. Many people call it the, the media reform movement. It's got at least three different branches right now. On the one hand, there are people who do indie media or in, in any number of ways, uh, people who've said, 
I'm so fed up with the content that's coming from the big conglomerates that I'm going to start a collective or on my own, I'm going to produce my own media. And this could be through the internet, the kind of YouTube producers who are out there, for instance, or people who have their own websites or blogs. But there also is a world of people who are doing low-power radio broadcasts. And one of the incredible stories I focus on is the emergence of low-power FM and an organization called the Prometheus Radio Project, which has been, which is one of the groups that's been helping to set up these low-power FM stations now throughout the world. So that's one exciting branch, the indie media movement. Another is a movement of people who, are, who have become watchdogs. And you find them on the left and also the right. It's actually very interesting, the, the politics of this, because it's an incredible coalition that's involved in media reform. And there are groups that said... You know, we're disturbed about what's going on with the media, but we want to make sure that we really understand what kind of content we're getting. And so whether it's MoveOn.org sponsoring, you know, citizen watches of Fox News, or whether it's people on the right who are concerned about what they consider to be indecent programming, uh, you know, doing their own content analyses, we're seeing all of this kind of media watchdog uh, activity uh, and it's and it's a really interesting thing because in many cases it's been used to try to hold media companies accountable uh, in in all sorts of different ways and then the third branch of the media reform movement and this might be the most exciting for me and I think the it's it's got the it's got the most potential to really transform the system uh, is the group of people who are working on media policy issues who have said media policy should be public policy and the recent history of media policymaking in this country, at least since the Reagan administration, is that the FCC sets and Congress are setting policies on the basis of backdoor meetings that they have with corporate lobbyists representing the biggest communications companies in the world. And the result has been an era of unmitigated deregulation of things that have worked very well for a small number of big corporations, but have not served the public. We have eviscerated the idea that our media law should serve the public interest. And so this media reform movement is demanding a place at the table so that citizens can have a say in the way that we make media laws. And it's a hard battle. The media lobby is an incredible force in American politics. I, I recently heard Ed Markey, the uh, congressional official from Massachusetts who now heads the House Subcommittee on Telecommunications, say that the uh, communications company have assigned an individual lobbyist for every single congressional official in Washington. So it's a, it's a very tough fight. But there are so many millions of Americans uh, from the left and the right who are part of this movement now that I think it's unstoppable. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. I had this morning on Cityscape a look at religion in New York. Cityscape with George Bodarkey this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. We're talking today on Fordham Conversations about media consolidation. My guest is Eric Kleinenberg. Kleinenberg is the author of the new book, Fighting for Air, The Battle to Control America's Media, out now from Metropolitan Books. He spoke last week at Fordham's Graduate School of Business. Kleinenberg told me that various groups within the United States, on both the left and the right, are fighting media consolidation. I asked him what the big media companies are doing to fight that. Well, they, they try to do as much work behind the scenes as they possibly can. So the media companies really flex their muscles in Congress, in the FCC, through their lobbyists and through their high-level connections. They also know that they've got a built-in advantage, and that is that political officials, no matter what party they're from, are loath to oppose media companies 
too aggressively because political officials depend on media to get attention when they're running for election or for re-election. And that's not just a question of uh, an endorsement. It can also be the kind of news coverage a political official gets. So when you have media companies like Fox in the world, uh, you know that if you push something that the Fox executives don't like, they can single you out and really injure you. But that's true at the local level as well. And, you know, newspapers, local television stations can really determine the fate of a political candidate. They can determine, for instance, at what time of the day political advertisements air, especially if they're bought at these subsidized rates. And so the history of political officials and media is that they've always been reluctant regulators. And, and so media companies have a leg up there. They also fight in the courts. They push very aggressively uh, in the legal system to try to get rid of ownership caps and other laws that they think of as excessively burdensome. And they try to make the argument that the choices we have through the Internet has rendered the argument for regulation obsolete. And so, therefore, it's literally unlawful for the government to restrict their capacity to own more and more of the system. And so there's a lot of legal battles, but interestingly, the media reform movement has been fighting legal battles too. And in an important story I tell in the book, the Prometheus Radio Project, this group of low-power FM operators, actually beat the media companies and Michael Powell and the FCC in this famous case, Prometheus versus FCC. So, so there's a lot of action in the courts. And then there's the kind of good old-fashioned political contributions. Media companies have made extraordinary contributions to political officials. The Center for Public Integrity just did a report, and they showed that in the last 10 years, political organizations from, from media companies have given $500 million to political parties. So citizens, again, have a lot to face when they battle for control of America's media. But there is something about getting millions of people from both parties together on an issue that also pushes elected officials to take notice. And that's one of the things happening today. Are there any sort of just private citizens who support media consolidation? Well, it's hard to come up with the answer for what uh, your personal interest in con more consolidation is. I mean, one thing I argue in the book is that unless you own a, a big media company or a big chunk of one, it's almost impossible to identify the public interest benefits of it. So um, in all the time that I did research, I, I never came across a, a citizen who felt like it was her responsibility to make an impassioned case for more consolidation. And one of the really interesting things I found is that even economic libertarians, people like William Sapphire, who typically uh, oppose regulation of most kinds, have gotten on board this case for media reform because Sapphire, for instance, fired off a series of six or seven op-eds in the New York Times explaining that, you know, if you're a libertarian and what you want is competition in the marketplace, bigger is not better. And if you look at what's happened to our local media markets, it's clear that we have oligopolies in radio, we have monopolies in newspaper, uh, and, and that has led to devastating outcomes. And, and again, particularly it's led to a loss of the live human beings, the, the labor, the people whose work goes into making media interesting, whether it's reporting or cultural programming. It was amazing to me, actually, going into the part of the research where I looked to see who was getting involved in media politics, because I found the William Sapphires and the Libertarians of the world, but also the National Rifle Association, you know, was getting upset about 
uh, excessive centralized control because they worried that a big media company in New York might not allow them to get their message across. The Christian coalition got very involved in opposing media consolidation because they felt like local stations would lose their capacity to get their own news and information out because they were always having to play whatever the networks wanted them to play. They were very concerned about the loss of local voices. Uh, and then also you had groups like MoveOn.org, the ACLU, Code Pink, the feminist organization, Free Press, which has emerged as this incredible umbrella group doing media reform. The citizen opposition to consolidation is overwhelmingly. And so you have to ask yourself, if you have nearly universal opposition from American citizens towards a policy agenda, in whose name is this policy being advanced. And the answer, I think, is is really it's just in the name of a small number of these companies that have such extraordinary power. And that's why what's really in the public interest, regardless of how you feel about any specific piece of legislation, is to make sure that we are talking about these issues more openly. And that's a big reason I, I wanted to write this book, to try to generate genuine dialogue about the issue. Because ask yourself, you know, when's the last time your favorite network news program aired a, a story about media consolidation or, you know, media politics? When is the last time you read a news story in your newspaper that wasn't a business story, you know, about stock prices, about the political or social consequences of consolidation? You know, when is the last time you heard on a commercial radio station a long discussion of the consequences of consolidation? Uh, the fact is, those stories are not produced by the commercial media. The commercial media has a vested interest in not telling those stories. And so we depend on independent radio, on public radio, on independent news sources, but we need to, to fight to make sure this becomes a genuine matter of public debate. Well, Eric Kleinenberg, thank you so much. It's been great being here. That was Eric Kleinenberg. Kleinenberg's book, Fighting for Air, The Battle to Control America's Media, is out now from Metropolitan Books. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend. Hello, Earth to liberals. You just don't get it. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.